generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. If you would like this program to continue, please be ready to pledge financial support when you are asked later in the program. this issue is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Cincinnati, where only the traditional Latin Mass is offered. Father, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, Father, to uh, get started on this issue, um, the, uh, the reason, I guess, that it's somewhat pertinent and topical, if you will, recently is the, uh, due to a movie which was recently re uh, released entitled The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, which tells the story of a, uh, a teenage girl, uh, or based on the, the story of a teenage girl. Um, I think it's depicted in the United States, however, it actually happened, uh, I think, in Germany, who was uh, possessed and the, uh, the church uh, got involved. Um, but on a broader topic, um, exactly what, what is the church's uh, positions on exorcism and uh, specifically with the, the, the story that this movie was based on? Well, the movie is entitled The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And the advertisements for the movie say that it was based upon a, uh, a true exorcism that was approved by the Roman Catholic Church. And it refers to a case that extended from 1968 to 1976. And the uh, young girl, her, her actual German name was Annalise. And she began showing signs of... Uh, well, something seriously wrong, already when she was about 16 years old, in 1968. <clears throat> and uh, she was under medical care, and her condition just got worse and worse and worse, and the uh, bizarre manifestations uh, more and more pronounced, until finally even the, uh, the Novus Ordo, when I say the Novus Ordo, I mean the, the changed diocese of Würzburg in Germany, uh, decided that they would uh, authorize the exorcism. And, uh, you know, even though this happened after Vatican II, and uh, we know that after Vatican II, uh, <clears throat> there was a great deal of loss of faith, not only in the laity, but in the clergy as well, priests and bishops, too. Uh, it seems that the priests who were called in on this particular case uh, still had the, the faith. And uh, they were validly ordained exorcists. The right, uh, the, rather, the, uh, the ceremony of ordaining exorcists was not changed until 1972 or 1973, I believe. And that's when Paul VI actually did away with it as a minor order. But the priests who were involved in the exorcism of Annalise um, in Germany were actually ordained long before that. So they actually had been ordained to the truly Catholic order of exorcists. Not only that, <clears throat> but the ceremony that they employed was the traditional Catholic ceremony of exorcism. That's contained in chapter 11 of the old Rituale Romanum. 
And after Vatican II, that chapter was left unchanged. In fact, it wasn't changed until about two years ago. And so the priests not only were validly ordained exorcists before Vatican II, but they also were using the traditional rite of exorcism. And, um, and so they could have actually performed the exorcism. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting uh, that this, this carried over because there's been a general loss of faith in the devil, you know, belief in the devil and his power after Vatican II. And even Paul VI issued a statement talking about the reality of the devil. He found it necessary to do that in the 1970s, I think it was, or maybe, maybe even in the 1960s, immediately after Vatican II. He had to emphasize the reality of the devil. And um, <clears throat> this is about the same time he was taking the, rite, the prayers of exorcism out of the rite of baptism. He uh, did away with the prayers uh, for the conversion of Russia with the, the prayer of exorcism to St. Michael the Archangel uh, after Mass. This is even before the new Mass came out. And so uh, he had done a lot to undermine belief in the devil, the reality of the devil. And then he found it necessary to try to shore up his belief by issuing some kind of a statement. But it was far too little and far too late. The... Um, the head of uh, the uh, exorcists in Rome now is a man named Father Gabriele Amort, A-M-O-R-T-H is his name. And he wrote a book a few years ago called An Exorcist Tells His Story. And he says in the book that he, he wrote this book about his experiences as an exorcist for many years in order to uh, kind of rally the Catholic clergy, even after Vatican II, to resist the power of the devil. Because Father Amort says the power of the devil is growing and growing in the world <clears throat> because the Catholic clergy is not opposing him. And in the book, Father Amort even explains uh, that uh, the Catholic priests largely don't even believe in him, let alone, and, and the bishops don't even know what to do to, uh, to resist him. And now that they've changed the uh, right of exorcism, finally, after all these years, they've ruined it. Because the new, the new theology on this is that the right of exorcism in the past, they say, was faulty because you're directly addressing the devil. Well, of course you were directly addressing the devil because you were commanding him to leave. And you'd refer to him as the infertile serpent and all, you know, rather spiritual insults in a sense, calling him what he was and demanding that he leave. So, of course, you're going to address him because you have authority over him as an exorcist, and he knows that, too. But the modern rite of exorcism does not directly address the devil. And the idea is, well, we don't want to alarm anyone. We don't know for sure if the devil is present. And so we can't go around, you know, addressing the devil as though we knew for a fact that he was there. Well, you see, this completely undermines the effectiveness of any new rite of exorcism, even if they had kept exorcists as a minor order, but they did away with that too. Mm -hmm. So I, I have no idea what on earth they're expecting to accomplish now in refocusing their, their interest on the presence of the devil, as they are in Italy and other European countries, and uh, trying to, you know, bring exorcism back into, uh, into play because they've seen the rise of the demonic powers there.
I don't know if they're planning on eventually reestablishing the order of exorcist, <clears throat> but even if they did, again, the new rite of exorcism is a total failure. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, the church believes that there are fallen spirits, that there are devils, there are angels who rebelled against God, and even though they are condemned to hell, they still retain angelic powers, which are far greater by nature than any human being's powers. And they do have the power to possess. Of course, they can only do what God permits them to do. But they do have the natural power to possess us. And they take possession of the body. When they uh, seize the control of the imagination, that's called obsession, when they attack you from outside by inflicting injuries on you and so on, that's called oppression, when they hound you as though it was a dog sicked on you. Certainly the most fearsome and the most frightening manifestation of the devil, though, for us, would be possession. The devil actually seizes the body, moves in, and uh, as though he were the, 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 the new occupier, and simply overrides, you know, the person who is actually there, the soul that is in that body, and takes possession of the body. Does one have to uh, voluntarily uh, let a devil or demon do such a thing, or? Well, in most cases, that is the case, yes. Uh, where the person has almost invited the devil to come in, either explicitly by performing some kind of a, uh, an invocation to the devil to possess him. Uh, in fact, in some uh, rock music over the last 30 years, there have been rituals performed on stage by rock musicians, which are formally, uh, formal invitations to the devil to possess them. Um, and they have that documented. I mean. A man named Alester Crowley uh, has written on this subject. He was known as the wickedest man alive and back in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and he is uh, a British, he's an Englishman. Mm. And uh, he actually wrote books of rituals on this. And so many of those rituals are actually performed by rock musicians on stage. You can find Alester Crowley's uh, picture, actually, his portrait, on the movie, uh, I'm sorry, on the album of the Beatles, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, has his photograph there, together with Sigmund Freud, Carl Gustav Jung, and a few others. Well, quite a few others. <clears throat> but among them is Alester Crowley. And uh, so on occasion like that, you would have an explicit invitation to the devil to possess a person. But then you have the implicit invitation, where a person lives his life in mortal sin, and becomes so debauched and so wicked uh, that he actually just makes himself up as though he were the devil's date, so to speak. And, and that's an implicit uh, invitation to the devil just to take him over. The devil doesn't always appear and, and make deals and say, give me your soul and I will, you know, I will uh, give you this, you know, as in young Goodman Brown. Um, he is often more subtle than that. When he finds the door open, morally, he will move in and he will take over. Our Lord talks about this in the, in the Gospel. He talks about the unclean spirit going out of a man and wandering through the world, looking for somewhere to, uh, to infest. You know? And uh, when he didn't find anything better, he went back to the original uh, person whom he had left. And he found the place all cleaned up because the devil had left. The person had actually cleaned himself up spiritually. But due to presumption, that's how it can be interpreted, he left the door open. 
And, uh, you know, people do that. They, they clean up their bad habits, they get better, they straighten out their lives, and, but they can get presumptuous and think, now I'm on easy street, now I'm out of danger, now I'm beyond being tempted. And, and that's like a, an engraved invitation to the devil uh, to say, all right, let's, let's see how far, you know, uh, you can resist me. And he moved right back in. In the gospel, the devil moved in and actually took seven uh, even more wicked spirits with him. And the last condition of that soul became worse than the first, when it just had the one unclean spirit in it. Our Lord's uh, talking about this makes it very clear that uh, not only can a person who is out and out wicked uh, be infested or be possessed by the devil, but <clears throat> there are ways we can leave the door open to him by our vices without really wanting him there. In fact, it's, it's a maximum, a maxim of uh, exorcists that if the person who is possessed does not want the devil out, there's nothing the exorcist can do. But the person has to have the will to be free from this diabolical influence. He has to want the devil cast out of him before the exorcist can do anything. You see, people, people have a wrong idea. And they, they got the wrong idea because of movies like The Exorcist, which Hollywoodized the story. As though the devil loves to flaunt his power. Well, perhaps to some extent he does. But when he is in the presence of an actual exorcist, I mean, someone who has the, has the power to command him, he does not want to flaunt his power. He wants to disappear. He lays low. He's like a cockroach. You turn the light on, he runs right under the refrigerator. Because he knows when, when there's an authority there that can command him and eventually expel him. And he does not want to be expelled. And so in the presence of an exorcist, he will conceal himself. And the exorcist has to repeatedly probe to see if he's there and command him to reveal himself. And as Father Amorth says in his book, I mean, he's gone as long as a year seeing a particular individual on a, on a weekly basis to try to find out if the problems the person is having are psychological or if they really are based on, uh, you know, some demonic possession. And he said he has been on the, uh, on the verge of declaring someone, you know, perfectly fine spiritually, and that is not, not possessed, mm -hmm. not under the influence of any diabolical uh, powers, when all of a sudden... He will see something that will catch his attention, and that he will, you know, will signal. It was like a red, red flag going up. And and he, what he's done is he's actually, by persistence, compelled the devil to reveal himself, however reluctant he is. And then Father Amorth said that when he engages the formal exorcism, that he finds out that the possession was there all the time. Of, you know, the, the standard procedure for the church is is what the priest did in this. Um, case of Annalise, who was mm -hmm. Emily Rose, you know, in the movie, <clears throat> they brought the medical field in to try to determine, is this actually a medical condition? And can it be treated medically? But when it is clearly beyond medicine, and when there are manifestations that are clearly beyond the natural, then it's time to uh, acknowledge that there is a spiritual force, an ugly spiritual force here that has to be dealt with. Uh, accordingly, you know, with spiritual power. How, how faithful, um, or 
unfaithful uh, was the movie to uh, not only the real the real story on which it uh, is purportedly based, but also um, with uh, church procedures and rubrics and uh, uh, so on and so forth. The movie, I think, was remarkably true, not only to the story, but also true to uh, the church's proceedings. You know? I mean, the movie didn't show a lot, mm -hmm. clearly. I mean, the, the, the years of, of examination of this case, the, the efforts on the part of uh, Annalise's parents in the movie, Emily Rose's parents, uh, consulting the various priests they'd known, consulting the various doctors they'd known uh, before that, and then going to the priests, and then the priests going to the archdiocese or the diocese of Würzburg, as I mentioned. And at first they were turned down uh, once or twice, you know, by the authority in, there in, in Würzburg. Uh, and it was only after years of this escalating that it was finally acknowledged that there was due cause for exorcism. I think. Uh, the manifestation started in 1968, and I don't think it was until 1976 that, or 1975, that the permission was actually given to two priests to undertake a formal exorcism, the solemn exorcism. And um, and they did. And I understand that within about five months, uh, you know, uh, uh, Annalise was dead of the abuse taken uh, from the devil. But there's an explanation for this in the movie. You see, I think in the movie there was actually only one engagement of a real exorcism. But ordinarily there would be a series of attempts to exorcise the devil because the devil holds on very tight. He has to be forced to, to let go. And the devil suffers very much during exorcisms. In fact, uh, Father Amort says that uh, devils have actually exclaimed to him in the course of exorcisms, we, more than one of them, uh, present in the soul, we suffer more here than we would in hell. Wow. And Father Amorth asked them, he said in the book, I asked them why they simply don't let go of this soul and return to hell. And uh, he said the answer was, we are here to make this person suffer. Now, how, how diabolical can you get? Mm. So that they, they suffer more under the, under the uh, exorcist prayers and commands than they would in hell, but they will not relinquish that soul because they're of their determined, their hellish determination to make that person suffer. That is really, really rotten. That is really devilish. Puts the intensity of their desire kind of in perspective there, I suppose. It really does, how, how wicked, how malicious they really are. But, you know, people ask, well, why would a, a wicked spirit suffer more in an exorcism than in hell? Well, you think about it, you know, if a soul died in the state of mortal sin and rebellion against God and hatred of God, and that soul were forced to face God in heaven, that soul would suffer more in heaven than it could ever suffer in hell. Uh, because the sight of God would torment that soul rather than make that soul happy. And so hell, even, even as it is, is actually a mercy. And it could be worse. The sufferings of hell are not infinite. They are only finite. <laughs> and uh, the worst sufferings in hell are, uh, is the deprivation, deprivation of, um, of seeing God in a loving, you know, a loving relationship. And uh, now you tell people that here on earth who are given over to sin, and 
they're not impressed by that. When you tell them, you know, you're going to go to hell where you will never see God. And they might say, well, great. I've been spending my whole life trying to get away from God. You know, how soon can I get there? But that's why God gave a certain a suffering that they would understand. And it's a suffering that can't even compare with the deprivation of the beatific vision of God. That's the suffering of the fires in hell. And all the miseries of hell, what we know as the pain of sense, all the senses are tormented in hell. Now that, worldly people understand. They understand fire, they understand flames, they understand, you know, the, the horrible, hideous sounds of the groaning and the shrieking, sort of like listening to the modern rock music, <laughs> which they also seem to enjoy. And maybe they're just getting used to it for the future. But whatever, I mean... They understand what it is to be tormented physically, and they don't want that. So even though the, the thought of being deprived of the vision of God means nothing to real hardcore sinners in this world, the thought of being tormented in hell is a terrible thing. And it might be the first step toward their repentance. And that's why God does. Taylor, hell was actually made, tailor-made, to move the human heart to repent and finally be saved. For those who will not love him, hopefully there are those who at least fear his justice and begin the steps necessary to love him and to be saved. The devils in hell suffer all these torments. Um, somehow they suffer torment. They don't have the senses like you and I have because they're angelic spirits. But they suffer the terrible torment of being deprived of God. But during an exorcism, they are confronted with the very holy things that are not in hell. And so as much as they suffer in hell, they suffer being confronted with the name of Jesus, being commanded by the name of the Blessed Mother and, and St. Michael the Archangel. Uh, they do suffer because of holy water. It's hard for us to imagine, perhaps, but here you have a, a very proud, angelic spirit who God, whom God has made subject to blessed water. And that is how low the devil has gone and how, how completely he is in God's power. That even that has been made an instrument of his torture here on earth. He doesn't have to deal with holy water in hell, but he does have to deal with it here in, in exorcism. So in a sense, here on earth, he is getting as close to heaven as he's ever going to get. But he comes into contact with God's power through exorcism. And yes, he actually could suffer more in an exorcism than he would. Um, the uh, recently, uh, and I suppose it kind of ebbs and flows, but recently there seems to be more of a fascination, public a fascination with the occult and uh, um, various uh, resurrection of various pagan religions and so on and so forth. Um, can these be uh, mediums or methods or ways through which people can wittingly or unwittingly expose themselves to oh, uh, demonic oppression? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, people who get into these things are looking for power. They feel powerless, generally, generally uh, disenfranchised, and whatever the other terms are. And they're looking for power that they think this can give them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the devil doesn't share power. Remember in the, in the movie The Lord of the Rings, um, I think the, the one wizard said to the other, uh, Sauron does not share power. <laughs> right? mm. And... Uh, when I heard that expression, I thought, well, if that doesn't exactly state the devil's idea. I mean, he will lend you the services of his power for the sake of using that to damn your soul to hell. 
but he's sure not going to share a power with um, So, yeah, I mean, that is more like an explicit invitation to the devil. Take me, I'm yours. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very ugly, evil thing. And it's very difficult to retrieve people like that from the power of the devil because they have to want to uh, escape his power. But he is literally hell-bent on keeping them. Once he gets them, once he gets his claws into them, his fangs into them, he does not release them willingly. You have to force him to. It's like a pit bull. You have to, you have to actually pry his jaws open to get them out of his mouth. Hmm. Um, it's extremely difficult to reclaim them. But, but there are examples. You know. In the case of Emily Rose now, I mean, she was always portrayed in the movie, and I think in real life, Annalise was actually a very good, devout person. There was a reason why she was suffering like this, and it's revealed at the end of the movie. And when she understood why she was suffering this terrible, terrible torment, she willingly accepted it and embraced it. And there are those, even today in the world, who think that the original Annalise was a saint, a great saint, a victim soul. She still has people going to her grave, visiting her gravesite, praying the rosary. Because they believe that she was a saint who willingly endured this torment like Job in the Old Testament was tormented by the devil for the greater good and God allowed this. And, and Job manifested his great love of God by enduring this. So there